in the mythic context, you know, it was believed it was believed that spiritually conscious, spiritually awakened, powerfully enlightened human beings were inherently perfect because they had such the power to transmit so much grace and so much right. so much consciousness. And so we've discovered in the West, you know, when we when the Eastern promise of enlightenment came, hit postmodernity, we've had example after example after example, including including in my case, that people can be profoundly awakened, profoundly enlightened, and have the power to transmit that profound state of consciousness to other people and still be imperfect human beings. It's part of the new understanding. So, I, so what I what I'm still advocate for is to, is is the fact that the Guru principle is is a function of nature itself. And some people have this gift, and it's a sacred gift. It's a profound. It's a it's a it's a profound gift. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. We explore the fields of neuroscience, integrative medicine, anthropology, optimal psychology, systems thinking, and existential risk. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome to a new episode of Homegrown Humans, where I get to chat with Andrew Cohen, a one-time spiritual teacher with a global reach, uh, the founding editor of the pioneering magazine, What is Enlightenment, and um, and a... Um, I would say a bad boy of the spiritual circuit who had a fall from grace in the last decade, who is now uh, returning uh, tentatively to public life, who uh, last year had an in-depth conversation with our buddy Sam Harris um, and has has reached out after uh, the writing of Recapture the Rapture to express some of his resonance and affinity with some of the topics in that book, specifically, I'm imagining the ethical cult building and ethical culture uh, sections towards the end. So we thought it would be fun uh, to actually dive into somebody who has lived some of those cautionary tales from the inside out and get to explore together um, what does it mean to um, both have personally profound uh, experiences and then grow communities um, founded on them, and then any and all of the lessons learned um, by those pe- peculiar and potent um, social psychosocial dynamics that arise around that, and then what, if any, are uh, pathways forwards both for um, Andrew, uh, his his community, both sort of uh, his historic and potentially um, ongoing students, and for the rest of us. So, uh, with that said, uh, welcome to Homegrown Humans, Andrew. Thank you, Jim. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Yeah. Well, listen. Let, let, let's start with the the simple, which is that um, I think a year or so ago, you might have reached out just saying, "Hey, just read your book." <laughs> Actually, I guess it was less than a year ago, right? So it was, it was probably sometime in the spring to early summer. Um, and I'm curious, you know, what landed for you in those sections, and 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 what was your reading? Because I would imagine that your point of view, uh, reading that section on ethical cult building, was relatively unique. Um, compared to your average reader coming into that content? Well, um, I was struck by how bold it was that you wanted, did you realize that human beings coming together and, and spiritual awakening is something that, that most sensitive people are drawn to do, that, we, that part, of, part of the awakening experience is as what you call communitas. So there is a, there's a natural and spontaneous urge and desire to come together with others to share higher consciousness. 
And as far as I'm concerned, the coherence we experience when we come together with others, in which we can share the deepest and highest truths together, not just intellectually, but when they're alive as a living experience, is the greatest experience of intimacy and connectedness it's possible to have. So, And that's something I hope we can speak a lot about in this call. But um, what I thought, I mean, what I what I am intrigued by, and as you're bold, boldly trying to reach for the highest, is reach for the highest realization from the perspective of, and, and I'm seeking for an open source access to the deepest to the deepest experiences of revelation, and want to try to find a way for people to make sense out of these experiences without referring to higher authorities or prior authorities. So I thought this was kind of bold, outrageous. I'm not, I, I don't know how it can actually be done because I have found that coming together, getting human beings to come together in profound intimacy and this deep and profound trust, which is something you've written about and spoken about quite a bit, is one of the hardest things it is to do, especially if the trust is not to be broken. So we're able to sustain that kind of intimacy. So doing that in an open source context is, is very bold because it's dangerous territory and it requires, the, it requires the, the, the best from all of us. And it's something that I've worked very hard on and I've succeeded extraordinarily and failed extraordinarily both. But, but when, you were, when you were taking this aspiration and putting it in an open source context, I just went, wow, I mean, could, 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 could this really work? Could, could, can, <laughs> I, can anybody walk up to the mountaintop you know, have the revelation come down and start and start sharing and coming together with other people that easily. And I, I, I don't know how it's possible, but I was very bowled over by your bold aspiration to to make all-time religion available to everybody in a way that it was truly democratic. Even the whole idea of the democratization of spiritualization and enlightenment and even the religious impulse is something that I. I understand that as an aspiration, but I don't know, I don't know how it can really work because we because we're all, because we all we all have so far to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was kind of blown away by it, uh, and I still am. And I don't know if we'll be able to go into it in depth in this call or not, but I'd like I'd like to know how how we can make such a thing work, because I think that we do need leadership. Originally, we need leadership. Yeah, well, and, and to be clear, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it can work either. I've just seen all the other bridges burn, so that just felt like if, if we're trying to sort of create the Beringia to hyperspace, like what is the land bridge that lets a, a small band of humans make their way from the old world to the new world into a post-conventional multiverse of awareness where we're literally holding down trans-temporal and trans-personal information streams and realities and possibilities, how do we chart that course? You know, and do we, you know, and do we need to wait for the weather to change and the ice to recede? Can we, can we hopscotch in boats? Like, how do we get there? And what might be possible? I mean, I think this was, you know, feels congruent with what your experiments were at Fox Hollow, but like what is, right? What is possible if we can stabilize the downlink? to source consciousness and have that shared amongst them, shared and amplified, right? Because it's a little bit like computers and serial, right? Our computing power seems to go up when we are in a coherent field together. And 
wonderful possibilities emerge that are simply not possible when we are fragmented and isolated selves. So before we get into exploring the power and possibility of communitas, I just, you know, it's important to just kind of add, add the required disclaimers, right, of quote unquote platforming it. Right. So, so for, <laughs> right. So for listeners that are under familiar with Andrew, Andrew's work, Andrew's potential fall from grace, you can go back to the Atlantic. There was a sort of video short on his community. And when, when was this, was this 07? Was it some other time? What was your question? The community was 2013. Oh, later. Okay. So 2013. Right. And basically there was a, a host of folks that had been part of your intimate students, part of your community that leveled, Feelings and charges of abuse, manipulation, power trips, financial exploitation, kind of all of those things. I think noticeably absent was sex and drugs. Um, so, you know, that that's curious. That very almost never happens. There's almost always one or more of those. I, I never crossed that line. Yeah. And so, um, and, and, you know, what had been a quite vibrant um, and, you know, and transnational community sort of um, shuttered overnight. Um, I think you, you had one of your more public steps back into um, public discourse uh, with Sam last year. And I think you guys fine grained um, quite a bit of the content of both your, your own experience, your shared experience was it with Punjaji uh, yeah, in, yes. in India. Right. Yes. So I think you guys had overlapping experiences there. And I think Sam did a solid job of kind of holding that that space. So for anybody that is interested in that, please feel free to look back to Sam's podcast with Andrew um, and that Atlantic film and then anything else that you come across in the kind of, um, you know, the digital footprint of that implosion. Um, I'm not going, I feel like that, you know, we can move on past that and let's actually kind of plow some new furrows here. Um, but that's kind of the backstory to where we are today. So, um, so with that, um, I remember you writing a little pamphlet of the book. It was not thick at all, but it was called In Defense of the Guru Principle. Yeah, that was way back, like 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I remember it because it was so contrarian, right, at the time, particularly, you know, and probably could still, to the kind of antinomian sense of everybody's their own spiritual guru, everybody's making, you know, everybody's making their own choices and selections as they go along. And you were actually putting a stake in the ground for a fairly, uh, you know, a fairly retro perspective, which was, hey, deference to a guru is really important. So just briefly, you know, sum up that argument that you make and then calibrate for us, how does that sit with you today? Well, the, the, guru, the guru principle is, is, is when it's actually it's something that happens to some people, but for the reason of which I don't know why it's a gift. When the, the capacity to awaken other people is, uh, is, is birthed in a miraculous way. I mean, I, um, I, be, I became a teacher within weeks after meeting my guru, and I didn't decide to do it. It started happening through me. The teaching started coming through me. People started having very deep and profound experiences. People started treating me with enormous reverence, enormous respect. And I wasn't, I wasn't seeking for this. No one told me this was going to happen. And I didn't ask for it. So it's, it's, a, it's a principle. It's a function. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a part of nature. It's something that happens. And so I'm trying, I'm trying to I just want to make a distinction between the awakening of the guru principle and what it means to become a guru as a human being. Now, okay. 
so the, the, the problem in the, in the mythic Eastern context is that if someone, ha if someone has awakened in such a way, it's presumed that, they, that such an individual is a perfected human being. And, and I think the last 30, 40, 50 years has revealed to when, when Eastern spirituality came to the West and when enlightenment came to the West, there's been so many tales of obviously very powerfully enlightened people who, who, who turned on and inspired many people who were shockingly human, had failings, human failings, just like everybody else. So I think this mythic belief that spirit, that higher, higher consciousness and human perfection are the same thing has been shattered and broken. So wait, so I, so slow, slow down and just say that sentence again. That in, in the mythic context, you know, it, was believed, it was believed that spiritually conscious, spiritually awakened, powerfully enlightened human beings were inherently perfect because they had such the power to transmit so much grace and so much so much consciousness. And so we've discovered in the West, you know, when we, when the Eastern promise of enlightenment hit post-modernity, we've had example after example after example, including, including in my case, that people can be profoundly awakened, profoundly enlightened, and have the power to transmit that profound state of consciousness to other people and still be imperfect human beings. It's part of the new understanding. So, I, so what I what I'm still advocate for is to, is is the fact that the guru principle is is a function of nature itself. And some people have this gift, and it's a sacred gift. It's a profound. It's a it's a it's a profound gift. But the guru is able to trans transmit these higher states of consciousness to other people, opens a door for them. So I still believe in the in the guru principle, and I think it needs to be honored. But the Perfection of the awakened one is something that no longer, it's just not true. It's never been true. And it's, it's, it's never been true. And it's not true. And I think we need to reconsider what it means to be enlightened in this, in this context. Which, you know, non ironically was the, the title of your magazine, What is Enlightenment? <laughs> right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, which, by the way, I, I actually found was a, a, a remarkably clear signal. Um, I, to me, that was the best thing you guys did um, because it involved lots of different voices. It was asking interesting questions um, and, and was just a good repository for that kind of exploration, you know, in a, in a more contemporary way. Um, but now, now a couple of things. So, so when I read that guru principle, I just remember thinking, oh, okay, perhaps there is value. What is the value? But now how do we do this in a way? How, how do we acknowledge this is similar to like, the baby boomer hippie generation coming out of the Eisenhower fifties and then saying authority is bad, get rid of all authority. Right. And they ended up with like communal, you know, communal shit shows and, you know, and just total nightmarish situations because they'd stripped out functional authority from dysfunctional authority. So yeah. my curiosity there was always, well, what's the functional authority of the guru principle? And at least in, in my reading and then, you know, subsequent thinking, um, it seemed to me that there were two vital functions that a, personified guru used to inhabit, however flawed or, or partial their execution, but that the two vital functions were one, if a person is getting close to a, an ego death experience, quite rightly, their ego signals to them, hey, fight flight, this is a life or death situation, you need to bail. And the deference, the, the sort of the, the, the absolute loyalty of not my will, but thy will to the guru can anchor somebody through that self, through that self immolation and prevent them from wiggling off the hook, you know, right at the moment of their potential Absolutely. level up. And then the other one is 
the, you know, the deference to lineage, which, you know, John Lilly, I think famously said, fundamentally, he was kind of talking about like reality tunnels or which kind of, you know, version of, of existence you're going to enact, and that you have to commit fully to one for it to disclose its intended or desired result. You can't kind of half-ass it. You can't sort of go halfway into a worldview and then expect the jewels, you know, that, that are promised at the end. So to me, those are two you know, very functional and important modes that the guru principle used to enact. And the question then is, how do you, how do we update the guru principle so that it is no longer personified in, an, in a single individual? And, and my sense was, and let me run this past you and see how it tracks, which is, you know, for the, I, I can't wiggle off the hook is in some respects, kind of the, the Odysseus effect. Can I lash myself to the mast, right? So that the sirens don't seduce me. Can I ahead of an ego death experience or some other acutely uncomfortable thing I'd really rather not have to do if I don't have to do it. Can we use public commitment? Can we use accountability partners? Can we use whatever? Can we hack this guru code and still honor the fact that when the sirens sing their sweet songs, I'm going to likely be powerless just like all those other fuckers. And I'm smart enough to know ahead of time. So I'm going to limit my chances. And then the other is, can we, can we engage fund, fundamentally a multi-perspectival um, stance on to. clicking into an outer reality tunnel? So it's sort of like, hey, I'm going to do the Vedanta shtick, or I'm going to do the Wiccan shtick, or I'm going to do the transpersonal psych thing. I'm running this program intentionally, and I tap in and I tap out a little bit like bowing into and out of a dojo. You know, there's very specific rules inside the dojo. Of, I, I'm allowed to come at you with an attack and I expect you to receive it and not take this as a street fight and knife me, right? Like there's certain sort of rules and protocols within a bounded reality tunnel that I can commit to wholeheartedly without losing myself that that reality tunnel is in fact all of all encompassing reality. I'm deliberately, you know, using an app or running a program. Um, how does that sound to you? This is, this is just a, this is a baby step into what you were saying, that decentralized notion of, of waking up could be. But how do those two workarounds or updates um, sound well, to you from, from the guru principle point of view? Well, the thing is, we were, we were talking about taking a leap from the known to the unknown, which is, which is the big, which is what the big step is all about. So either we're going to take that leap of faith and, and go all the way, not knowing what's going to happen. We have to do that at least once. Because as, as long as it remains in the app context, it means we're still hedging our bets. It means we're still we're still holding on to a measure of sovereignty in a way that's that's going to that's going to hold us back from drowning in spirit itself. And so I so so however we do this, there has to be at least one time when we jump all the way and take take a take a complete leap of faith in which potentially there's not going to be any return. Other, otherwise, otherwise we can't get the complete result. Yeah, that's, 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 and in that, are, are you describing some form of a death rebirth experience? Completely. Some form of a complete stripping away of all known reference points. And that's you're just in, in the ocean. It has to happen once. Not, not my will, that will be done. When I met it seems, like, it seems like more than once. I mean, you have it once. And you're like, whoa, that's done. I'm good. I was being cautious. <laughs> but yes, it has to happen many times. But I, but I remember, but I remember when, I, when I met my own teacher. I was sitting alone with him in his room. He was sitting on his bed. We weren't talking. And then I, 
I had been there a couple of days and I remember I, I heard the words coming out of my mouth. And I, they didn't come from my ego because I didn't come from my mind. I, I heard myself say them as if someone else said, I'm ready, I'm ready to die, but I don't know how. Mm-hmm. And so this, this, this deepest part of me was seeking for a way to let go unconditionally, absolutely and radically. So, so I think the, the, I think we, we have to, I mean, this, in my understanding, this has to become a constant reference point. This, what you're pointing to is this, is this letting go of everything. Oh, I, I, one metaphor I like to use is jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. Because if you jump out of an airplane without a parachute, you don't intend to come back. And we say, well, what does that really mean? Well, we don't know. We have to be willing to find out. And it takes enormous courage and a very, a very profound will and an aspiration to really find out what's on the other side. And that's, that's the biggest risk. That's the biggest spiritual risk we have to take, one way or the other. If we, if we want to find out what's on the other shore, that's something we have to be willing to do. Okay, well, this this kind of you know belies your um, both your emphasis on one way irrevocable non dual awakening, you know, and and your and your sort of neo Vedantic philosophy, which to me I've always found wildly problematic in a modern Western context. It is or, right. So 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 if I if I had to pinpoint right where where you know where you came undone. It was, you know, the combination of what, uh, what, of our, what our friend uh, Diane Hamilton playfully called. She's like, oh, well, Andrew was always a Jewish American princess, right? You, you realize that, right? And the idea that, you, you know, you were, you were a precious mama's boy from the Upper West or East Side, right? So you came from money, you came from background, you came from privilege and a sense of exceptionalism and specialness. And you well, opted that onto irrevocable one way waking up with the patina of Eastern you know, um, or basically Orientalism, right? The the romantic, mystical, magical projections, and the and the hierarchical claims of you know almost quasi monastic guru authority. Like to me, it's not that much more complicated. How does that how does that live in your experience? And and you know, where would you say you're you are now? Well, I was never a mama's boy, but that's 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 a that's, a, that's another discussion. It doesn't really matter. But I think that uh, I I don't I don't agree with that depiction because what was you what was what was fairly unique about what I was trying to do is I I was interested in people who wanted to go all the way, mm-hmm. not come back. So we were looking so so people who wanted to. And the question is, what does it mean to want to live the spiritual life wholeheartedly and unconditionally, radically, completely? Well, it's the same motivation made made people want to become monks and nuns and go to the monastery and go to the forest and go to the mountain. So. So that's what that's what moved me. That's what inspired me. It's what still inspires me. And, I, and the question is what because because now what's happening is a lot of people are are seeking transcendental experiences, but we're saying how, how do we integrate them in a secular context? And what if and what if that's something that we don't necessarily feel drawn to do? What what how what, what would it look like if we can live the spiritual calling without any limitations, without any without any M- meaning? What if you have hits of transcendence and you don't want to stitch it back into your day-to-day. Is that what no, you're saying? Well, like, well, what well, if you well, want to just keep going and just see where the hell this golden road goes? Yeah, but, but yes, absolutely. And, and therefore we want our day-to-day to be, to be an experience and an expression of that, which is miraculous, ongoingly, in the, in the tradition of the greatest realizers throughout history. 
All right. Then, well, well, well let's, let's explore that because I think I remember you, you writing a, not quite scorched earth, but I think a fairly, you know, a fairly heartfelt critique of Jack Cornfield's after the ecstasy, the laundry. And I think, I think I remember you saying something along the lines of like, this is a little weak sauce, like this, this kind of, kind of compromise, you can have your cake and eat it too. You know, like you can just, you know, you can walk your householder's path and just be a little sparklier around the edges is a ducking of the, the true kind of evolutionary impulse or mandate. Do you, do you still hold to that or, or has, did, you know, did your time in the washing machine um, <laughs> soften any of those stances? No, I, I, I still have that aspiration. Um, I still have that aspiration, but I think that um, my mythic absolutism in relationship to myself and in relationship to seeing my role has changed quite a bit. Because when I met my guru, he told me I was God's gift to humanity, that he'd only seen the look he'd seen in my eyes in, in Ramana Maharshi and in himself. So I was, pretty, I, was, I was pretty pumped up. And the experiences I was having, especially at the beginning, were all leading me to believe that I was special and extraordinary and had a unique gift. And I think I bought into that more than I realized. And that's kind of what got me into trouble. Because the, re the reason that the community fell apart was not as much for the reasons that you mentioned, but it was really because um, my closest friends were beginning to have differences with me. And they were calling me to face into those differences and to meet, and meet, meet them in an honest discussion about it. And I was unwilling to do that. And, and, and that was so out of alignment with everything that I taught that it led to, an, it led to a big break in trust. Oh, that, was the, that was the actual cause of the breakdown of your community. So, well, I mean, I mean well, let, let, let's, let's drill into that, right? Because if I'm just kind of, you know, a slightly disinterested armchair observer, and I would say, okay, I, I, I follow your hypothesis. There's the idea that there are, you know, unparalleled, higher states of human consciousness. They've been touched upon through history by the kind of saints and sages and avatars. Um, we shouldn't settle for anything less and we should all get there. And by your descriptions, you guys had some moment. I feel like there was a few months, maybe, maybe uh, at Fox Hollow, your intentional community in, in the Berkshires, where you claim to have arrived there. You said, you said, we did it. We did the thing. No, 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 no. I, we, had a, we had several big breakthroughs, but the one you're referring to was I had always been very interested in what if, it, what if the experience of enlightened awareness was not, in, was not a unique subjective experience of one unique individual, but mm -hmm. what, if it, what if it could become a shared ground between us? Mm -hmm. So I was working on that for about 18 years, and I was putting a lot of pressure on my students to make this happen, and then after many, many dramas and a lot of pressure, there was a huge explosion and this thing happened and my, my, my students experienced the ground open up between them. And people, there was, just, there was this shared recognition of kind of, of an evolutionary, evolutionarily uh, inspired state of consciousness that everybody was sharing that none of them had ever known before. And they'd been with me a long time. They all had a lot of experiences. So this was the emergence of a shared, of a shared state of an evolutionarily directed enlightenment that changed everything. And that, that, that was the big breakthrough that happened. And I, and I do believe we punched a hole in, we punched a hole in the cosmos at some at some particular point and made something possible that didn't exist before and it's and it's a lot of people that might call it grandiose thinking and it could be true but something amazing did happen and we had we, and we had we had several events like this because we were, i was really pushing for for breakthroughs 
I didn't, I really didn't want just to have followers. That, that's why I was pushing because a lot of people, if they're around a powerful realizer, they, they, they think that, they, they think that makes them great because they're, they're in relationship with a powerful realizer, but they're not doing anything. They're just hanging around. And, and then a lot, a lot of people who haven't really been, been able to make something out of themselves in other contexts will find a context like this and, and suddenly feel that they're, that they're, that they've become great, even though they haven't done a damn thing to become great. And so I wanted, my vision was, I thought, look, I'm really pushing for this. If, if we're all if we're all working very hard on ourselves and we're working hard on this project together, then we can generate a kind of energy that's going to be miraculous. And so that's what I kept pushing for. I'm pushing for. I'm pushing for. It led to many extraordinary breakthroughs. Yeah, but but just from a super pragmatic point of view, right? Never never mind the kind of metaphysical. Um, I would you know I would just ask sort of say, well, if so, then what? Like if, if you guys got there, and and let's even just let's give you full full marks. Like uh, Punjaji would recognize in you some exceptional transmission capacity. You had access to non-ordinary realms. And after you know, nearly two decades of really hard, sustained effort building your community and your people, you guys were able to link up and do the next thing, which was in some form of, of a collective coherent presencing of a higher order intelligence. Then how on earth did you also run it off the cliff? Well, it's tragic because I, I wasn't willing to let go of power. That, that's really what did it. And was that non-illumined in those rarefied states? How was that occluded from the illumination that was so profound it punched a hole in the universe? Well, ego's, ego, ego creates big blind spots, even for people that have access to awakened consciousness like me. So, so the tragedy is that um, I literally didn't see it because I'd always felt that if I let go of control, everything was going to fall apart. And ironically, that's what happened. But what, what needed to happen was I, I was operating within a, a kind of a mythic belief system, a, an old mythic hierarchical belief system. So, so, so these, my closest friend, had surrendered to me as a spiritual master, which meant in the traditional sense that we were going to be together for eternity. And I didn't realize, so look, you know, uh, these are postmodern boys and girls who at a certain point are going to need to do their own thing. They're going to need to go up and leave, leave the shade of daddy's tree and are going, going to want the freedom to be able to do their own thing, whether it's with me or whether it's not. And that was something that for my closest friends, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't understand that. I couldn't see that. And it's, I realize it's pathetic, but it's true. So I said, which, which, which bit is pathetic? That, that I couldn't see that, that they need, that everybody, that my closest students needed to individuate in order to, in order to complete their own higher development. And that individuation may, would mean outside of our own context and outside of the racial relationship with me, maybe even God forbid. So the thing is, had I realized this earlier, in other words, my, my friend Steve McIntosh said it to me at the time. He said, Andrew, he said, one way to look at this is it shows what a good teacher you are because when your closest students reach integral consciousness, the, the guru paradigm wasn't going to work anymore. That's one way, it's one way to see it. So I, I literally didn't get it. So I, had I, I realized that had I realized this 10 years earlier, five years earlier and opened up the system at the top, Open it because because loyalty because a lot of the cultic habits of loyalty and being together being together with the guru. We had a lot of those cultic ideas as I did. Had I had I opened up our our world and opened up from the right top and gave everybody the permission, especially my closest friends, the permission to come and go as they needed to. Mm -hmm. This thing could have organically developed in a truly post postmodern way that that could have left everybody free to work together in a way that was much more spacious than the one that we had arrived at. Hmm. And that, and I failed in that. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder how much this is generational. I think you've probably got a you've probably got about a decade on me, but I I I, I personally was just never ever ever drawn to the Eastern Neo-Vedanta because it just seemed to have all of those pathologies baked in, especially in including absolutist claims of enlightenment and then subsequent infallibility. That was kind of the Adi Da trip, right? Yeah, for sure. Right. And, and, and I, and the only time I ever saw you speak publicly, I some, some friend dragged me to something you'd done in New York. It was a fairly small room. There was maybe like 50 to 75 people in it. It kind of had big windows and a wooden floor. And you said it was, it was sometime in the early two thousands. And I remember listening and thinking, Oh, this is quite persuasive. This is quite seductive. We're all on the frothy edge of evolution and here we all are. And if we're in this room, we must be part of the magic too. And, and, but I remember leaving that day thinking, Oh, every single one of these hooks that Andrew's throwing into the ocean, right. Has a bob in it. Like, like for instance, you know, there, this is this grand evolutionary process, but on the one hand, we're, which is presumably a natural unfolding, a natural and almost inevitable unfolding. And on the other hand, we're part of an elite elect revolutionary vanguard. So we're special. Um, or, you know, you have the capacity to transcend your ego, but you can't trust yourself. You have to defer to a guru, AKA me. And I just remember that feeling of like, oh, whoa, this is super compelling. And it will be very easy to, you know, to get to get people and reel them in here. But every single one of them, that hook that originally drags them in is also really hard to take out. And and that was just my hit at the time. And it seemed like it, it played out in some way. So, so, you know, I think the, if you were just truly a dyed in the wool, old school boomer, enamored with Eastern mysticism, circa 60s to 70s, that would be one thing. But you explicitly hitched your wagon to both Wilbur and integral theory of some form of evolutionary enlightenment, some form of developmentally informed progress. So how did you miss what Steve McIntosh was saying about the need for fundamentally going from socially defined to self-authoring to self-transforming humans and Keegan's models. How did you, how did you miss that? You simply had none of the scaffolding for the move to self-transforming individualism. And those bobs in the hook were eventually going to fester and create some profound mismatch between deference and dysfunctional family dynamics in a hierarchy and, you know, versus, you know, helping folks wake up and stand up on their own two feet. Well, I mean, I don't think I can give a satisfying answer. I just realized that I was pulling people in two directions at once. And we were working with evolutionary theory and we were working with stage theory. We were working with a lot of the, these ideas. And at the same time, I was still very identified with the mythic model that the, that we, that the, relate, the relationship with the guru is eternal. And we're going to be with him in this context forever. And that was, that, that was, when I was here, I was just, I really bought into it. And I only began to wake up to this after everything fell apart. It took me, without a shame, it took me two or three years to see this, even though it's, it's painfully obvious now. I didn't, I didn't, I, and Ken told me, he said, he said, he, he made it clear that when we had some discussions about this, I was pulling people into, um, to, to, in a parent, in a paradox, I was holding people in a paradoxical hold, pushing to push you towards the future and holding people back. Below, below their actual center of gravity at the same time. And I didn't, I just didn't see it. Hmm. Hmm. Well, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm still curious what, what in either your, your lived experience in history or your initial exposures or, or elective choice, what prompted you 
to hitch your wagon so strongly to fundamentally that Indian lineage tradition versus, oh, hey, I went bumbling around. I went exploring. I had a few Shazam moments in an exotic place. And then I came back to the States. I came back to the Western world. And I translated that light into the idioms that were more accessible. What prompted you to double down on the traditional absolutist hierarchic trip versus something more progressive and updated modern because you, you've, you've spoken, you spoke, you've spoken today and you've, you, you've, in your recent book, you've also acknowledged something around the levels of cultural levels of development of your community and those things. So you had an awareness of this, just kind of this postmodern movement, the center of gravities, all those things, but the vehicle in which you attempted to transmit the thing you felt you had um, was quite, you know, traditional. Um, and, and, yeah. To the point of retro. Yes, from an evolutionary context, that's true. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I can't give you a satisfying answer to the question. It's just something that I think the experience of the, the, the experience of the love that we shared was so profound, and the experience of intimacy that we shared was so profound that I couldn't see beyond it. I mean, I, could, I just couldn't see beyond it because because of the intimacy was so so strong, and I, and I couldn't see the places where I was stuck and blind. I mean, now it's as obvious to me as, as the fact that I'm sitting here and talking to you. It's it's painfully obvious because I if I if I all I had to do was would be essence of the teachings. All all I needed to do was let go. <laughs> all I needed to do was let go, and we were also together. We all we would we would have stayed together, but in a way which everybody felt absolutely unbounded and and free to do as they needed to do. Uh, in, in, their, in, in whatever way they needed to do it, and that would and that would have it would have, it would have made our community ten times more beautiful than it was in its best moments. But I, but I, and all I needed to do was let go and trust, which is what I teach other people to do all the time. And I, I used to, I didn't see it, I couldn't do it, and I, I became proud and angry, and I felt I felt proud and angry and threatened, and and uh, yeah, all the pride before the fall. Well, okay. So, I mean, so now let's imagine, I'll put on my kind of like conservative parents sitting at home and my young child is about to run off and join you or someone like you. Right. And I would, and I would say, why bother? Right. If all of that highfalutin shits amounts to a hill of beans, right. It would show up in the lives of these people demonstrably for the better, but look at what happened, right. Look at what happened to Cohen's community. It was all this effort. It was all this heartache and heartbreak. It was all of this subjugation and dysfunction. And yes, they glimpsed this shimmering thing briefly at times, but so fucking what, right. All of that love and light didn't actually couldn't heal the healer. Right. And didn't, transform the community. And you can extrapolate this to psychedelic visioning and the psychedelic renaissance. You can, you, can, you can extrapolate this to any body of practice or community of practice that is truly shooting the moon. Um, but the question is, is, is that the weak link? Is access to profound non-dual information actually the hard part? Or is the weakest link Monday mornings and doing the human thing? Because you know, and, and, and you know, to, to lay my cards, that, that's that's my you know increasing hypothesis that like shooting the moon is actually easier than ever. It's the humaning, it's the mammaling, it's the it's the tribal primate stuff 
that is actually our persistent fail point. So make a case or, you know, or revise your, your stuff. Well, well I, I think my I, feel, I feel your, your description was painfully reductionistic. So mm -hmm. our, our, our mutual friend, Diane Hamilton said, said to me that I've never, I've never seen students like yours, Andrew, they're the most incredible people I've ever met in terms of seeing the products that we used to work with a teacher and several other teachers have told me who impressed they were with my students. So I, I'm also proud of the work I did and the life we were living together and what we were experiencing and, and what was going on was profound, extraordinary, miraculous, and so infused with, with higher potentials that it, that it, that it wasn't at what you're describing. And well, remember, I remember I was in role. I was playing the, I was playing the, the conservative parent sitting at home. That's cool. Right. I, I see the, I see the, the crash and burn as, as, uh, it's something that had to happen to make to make room for a kind of a much a much more expanded and very much bigger way to think about all this. Okay, well, and, and as you're describing the role of kind of guru slash transmitter, um, the first thing that comes to mind for me, especially given you know the last decade of neuroscience, um, you know, and I and I wrote about this in Stealing Fire, but then also spoke about, you know, with uh, Isade's business school and even business school folks and the folks that were most effective as leaders were the people that were able to entrain others into state. So fundamentally using their neurosomatics as a metronome, right, to bring people into a coherent resonant field with them. Uh, Stephen Porges' polyvagal theory, which is, you know, still very much just a theory, but that sense of, oh, we, we, we attune to each other's vagal nerve tone and we get a sense of, you know, safety or security or danger and, and vocal inflection and tone and just even, you know, tons of nonverbal cues and markers can meaningfully uh, shift state for folks. And then Lisa Feldman Barrett's work on interoception, that sense of kind of, how, you know, how do we, um, you know, pre-emotion just in our viscera you know, feel in the company of other animals and organisms, you know, and primates and even alpha, you know, alpha silverback slash kind of, you know, dominant primates. Um, is there something, is there, you know, and you described it as a spiritual gift, but, and again, to, you know, to deliberately be reductionist and materialist, is that capacity to transmit, is that, is, is much of the wonder, much of the mystery really simply someone who has intuited or through disciplined practice found a way into alpha, theta, even waking delta states who can perhaps hold a pulse of gamma inspiration and is able to entrain other monkeys with clothes into comparable states. And then, you know, all sorts of interesting things happen in those states, which then get ascribed to a mystomagical um, cause. But in fact, it's just hell. You're you're one hell of a tuning fork or a metronome. Well, I think it's more profound than that. I, mean, I, I wouldn't reduce it to the materialistic context. I mean, the, the way the metaphor I would use to describe it is 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 when the, when these experiences are truly profound, they they have a an almost physical effect on our psyche and in our soul so after i met, after i met my teacher i spent three weeks in an altered state with the energy running through my body mm -hmm. and the currents of bliss were almost were so intense that i felt i was going to die I felt like i was literally being consumed by by a dimension like a reality that I, that I couldn't see what i could feel it lasted for about three weeks 
and I, and ever since and ever since during that experience and I, and ever since that experience if i sit with people the, the, there was a hole there was there was a, there's a hole in 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 my soul in the most positive sense of what that could mean and, and through that hole the what we, what we could call the ground of being the deepest dimension of reality infuses itself and other, and other people feel it mm-hmm. and i don't have to i don't have to do anything and i'm not trying to hypnotize people and i'm not using any techniques so it, it's it's natural it's spontaneous and it's easy and it's effortless and happens by itself and that's part of the miracle about it and of course if i even 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 in terms of the, the teaching capacity when i'm when uh as you're, you're next one on flow states, when I'm teaching, I, a, a portal opens up inside my, my being, and I have access to information that often I've never thought about before, and, and, a, and a level of knowledge, especially when I start teaching, that I never earned. It was already there fully formed. And I had access to, to wisdom and knowledge about higher consciousness that was just that was potent, and, it, and the people would just listen to me speak about these dimensions of consciousness, they would begin to awaken to them simultaneously. And I was as shocked and as amazed by as, as everyone else. Yeah, right. In the mystical Christian tradition, that would be known as logos or sort of the Pentecostal yeah. tongues yeah. of fire, right? The ability That's to true. speak a reality into being and to, and to speak when spoken through. Yes. Um, and, and, but now, now, interestingly, and, and I'm curious, I, I'd love to touch on your relationship with your wife and things like that as well, because, you know, m- you know my own experiences I wouldn't in any way say parallel that they were wildly different, but like my experiences of of booting up into interesting domains, late teens through twenties, the sense of ha- you know having a being a bit of a pie piper to my students who were in sort of high school and college, and you know we were spending time in guiding in the in the wilderness and all these kinds of things, and then sometime teaching at Esalen in the early two thousands, I literally had a sort of Fonzie on happy days moment, like unable to transmit anymore because like at the time I just been like yeehaw. This this is amazing. Come follow me. Like, like some rad shit over this here hill. And, and then a bunch of students were coming in for a week at Esalen and I knew they were expecting me and hoping that we would, that I would light them up. And then suddenly it was like, zoo, 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 zoo. Like, I couldn't say, sorry. I couldn't, I was like, Oh, and there was some, you know, quiet, still voice in my head. that was like, yeah, this is no longer serving them or you. Like you can light them up like Roman candles. Sure. But it is going to create dependency and it's going to feed your shadow and it's going to prevent them from standing their own two feet. And, and it literally like all that capacity just ebbed away from me. And I felt absolutely naked and bereft. I'm like, Oh shit, I'm going to disappoint people. This is going to be a lame week. Like fuck. And, and it was really vulnerable and edgy, but I was like, Oh, okay. Actually what, what I need to do now is spend four to five times as much effort on really kick-ass instructional design. I can't just show up and be a transmitter, right? I actually have to put more time, thought, and effort into the learning that these folks can have. And that's not to say that I haven't had, you know, to drop into state and I haven't, you know, from time to time um, string a few words together, you know, that have a, have a poetic impact, but it is to say that that was a fork in my road um, where, it was clearly no longer okay to uh, to accept other people's golden shadow, right? That, that it was like, oh no, that road lies ruined eventually. And I and I also wonder, um, 
I was a father at a relatively young age, sort of 27. And so I always had this, this domesticity, like, like no matter how far up the mountain I got flung, there was no bones about it. <laughs> I had to make it back down to my family, which was always the most grounded and unflinching litmus test of how well integrated I was or wasn't. So I never even had the option to say, fuck it, I'm staying up here. And I'm just curious as to, you know, your, your relational background. My, my understanding is that you were with your wife in, you know, intact through this entire time. Is that right? Married for 35 years, still together. Yeah. So, but, but no children. Is that right? No children. No children. Okay. So, so talk to me about that. Kind of busy with lots of adult children. Yeah. So, so, so how did your, how did your familial relationships Right, inform both both support and thwart your stable grounding of your own lived experience and your role as teacher. Well, my wife and I were we were together before my awakening. Then after my awakening, she she when we met, I said, "If you want to be with me, you have to want this as much as I do." And she said, "I do." And so. She supported me, but the, but the thing is, Jamie, that at that, that time more than ever, this 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 mythic identity was very profound. So we didn't have a peer relationship. I was the spiritual master, and she was my wife. <laughs> mm. And so she, so she so she she loved and supported me, and she and, and I feel like I owe her everything. But she had a, she, I think she had a hard time because I because she because she was the guru's wife. And so that, that gave me, it gave, it gave, it gave me, I, our relationship was unequal. I had, I had all the power in the relationship. And so it made, it made it very difficult to, but we stayed together. And, and what was very interesting is that since the, she, and with the crash of the community and suddenly everybody was thinking I was the greatest thing that's ever been born to the, to the worst. I, you know, I, she, she was watching all this happen and she, she saw through it all. And she remained very loyal and very supportive of me. Now we are, Truly peers. So for all those years, we weren't peers. Now we're now we're peers, and we're very good friends on a very human level. And she's fully supportive of my teaching work, but she's she's not my student anymore. Mm. So we have a, so we we have a much healthier relationship for that reason, right? Then now than we did then. Well, and how, how were you able to sort of unwind the de facto Stockholm syndrome of of if she had any? codependencies that allowed her to subjugate herself to you and you were willing to play along with that for decades, formative decades. How were you guys able to unwind that in the wreckage? Because that's obviously that that's unstable times, everything from prestige to social networks to earning yeah. to, you know, all sorts yeah. of things. How, how did you guys navigate um, going from guru, you know, wife to something presumably approximating a dyad, uh, you know, a, a balance of masculine and feminine. I mean, I don't have a very interesting answer. It was, it was really very, very natural and uncomplicated. And I think when she saw so many people change their opinion of me so dramatically and so quickly, she, 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 but I was very surprised because what could have happened, she could have said, yeah, he's, he's, he's a motherfucker. And she could have, she, and she had, Push me away. She would have gotten the love and support and adoration of so many people. But she, but she, she was true to her own experience. And I didn't. There was no manipulating her in that because I spent about a year on my own during this period. We spent a year apart, 
And we naturally came back together in a very simple human way. It was very undramatic. And she she didn't seem to be all that wounded to me. She 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 had suffered because of the fact that everything fell apart and because of how painful it had been. But um she didn't go through any kind of dramatic dramatic emotional process in terms of reclaiming her autonomy or anything like that. It was really very natural. And um and it was during a period I was really finding my feet again. She, there, was a, there was a deep friendship and a kind of a, a sense of supporting each other at the level of, of, of lifelong partners in a way that was very sweet and very beautiful. I, and I, I'm forever in her debt for that because, because when, when one is broken, kindness and love, that's, that's, that's simple and uncomplicated, can, can take and do, do, do wonders. So yeah, we have a, we have a very good relationship. We love each other very much. But it's but she's even though my whole life is is committed to this, to this teaching work and what and what it becomes possible, she's not part of it anymore. She doesn't want to be. She wants to be a potter. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Which must be much simpler. No, but but, she, but she, she's she's uh, she's individuating and she's finding her she's finding her own creative passions. And she fully supports what I'm doing, so that they, and, and it's honest, and she, because she believes in it. But she's found her own art. She's found her own autonomy in a way that's been very. She's individuating in a beautiful way. Mm-hmm. So okay. it's a happy, a happy ending to the story. Is there something you want? Do you want to talk about the, the issue of why the uh, cross sexual boundaries with my students? Why you wanted to think about that earlier? <laughs> because I'm an I'm an anomaly. I know that I'm one of the few gurus who never did. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, for sure, feel free to speak to, because um, almost all of them go off the rails and sort of break their own rules, right? So regardless of whether they were ascetic monastic, you know, up front, they're almost always raging in the back room. Um, so what for you about the sex, drugs, rock and roll shtick or, or libertine hedonism and, and, and crazy wisdom indulgence um, either wasn't appealing to you or was such a an important firewall you never breached it even though you muddied some other lines well I, well when i was a young seeker when i was in my early 20s uh, after reading autobiography of the yogi i became very interested in experimenting with celibacy and i was i was living in a monastery I was living in new york in my own way they were surrounded by beautiful vivacious attractive women but i i was becoming kind of disgusted by by this kind of programmed relationship to lust and sexuality and i and I wanted to, I, I didn't like it. I didn't feel free in relationship to my own, my own sexuality. And I'd heard all this talk about the virtues of celibacy. I became very curious about it. So when I, I was in a relationship, my a relationship broke up. I said, now I have a chance to find out. So I, so I, I made a, I made a, I took a vow between me and me. And I, and I went, I went strictly celibate for almost three years. And I, I was very strict about it. I didn't masturbate. I didn't, I didn't look at pornographic pictures. And even if I was in, in a movie, there was any sexual activity, I just looked away. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a moralistic thing. I just wanted to, I wanted to release myself from the identification with the sexual impulse. And I found that process and that practice more powerful than meditation and, and, and began to see the limitations of the mind and so deeply conditioned we were. And I, I remember when I, when I, when I told a good friend of mine at the time that had no spiritual interest, I said, no. I'm so happy today. I'm out of my mind with excitement because it's six months has gone by and I haven't had an orgasm. <laughs> and he looked at me like I was a lunatic. He couldn't relate to what I was talking about. But it, but it was, it was, it was a sense of mastery, self mastery, not repression, 
But I never had a moral stipulation for sexuality or any issues with that very postmodern. But it was just, there was a sense of mastery. So then, when I when I got involved in the spiritual world, and I saw that so so many so like so many of the greatest gurus of the time, I saw Mukhananda, so many of the greatest teachers had few to claim relationship to sexuality, and they and they'd all done this practice these incredible austerities. They were accomplished yogis in a way that I never was. And you know, when it came to sex, they couldn't keep their pants on, including my own teacher. It started to go to my head, so I, I started to develop, developing an idea. Part of my spiritual ego is that I was the pure one, because all, they, all, they almost all couldn't keep it together. I said, and I, and I could, I knew I could. And I remember there was one night after I'd been teaching for a few months, I was sitting in a room in England, meditating with a group of about thirty people. And I remember I opened my eyes at one point, and I looked around the room, and I and I realized everybody in this room trusted me, trusted me absolutely and completely. And I realized that I could more or less start to change what I was saying slightly, no one would notice because it was coming from my lips. Mm-hmm. And I realized, oh, this is how it happens. And I told myself in that moment that I was never going to cross that line. It was a, it was, it was a golden rule for me. So, but, but the downside of it was that I, that I started feeling superior to so many other truly great realizers because of this one issue. And that became mm-hmm. an ego. And so fascinating. Fascinating that the... the pr- ultimately primal tug of sexual impulse, particularly coupled with power and adoration, um, didn't bend you, even though the ego trip of being the pure one did. Correct. So it kind of got you on the back end, like the Balrog and Gandalf. Correct. Now, now, and when you describe celibacy, to me, it seems like there's, there's two importantly different threads there. One is sort of the Taoist, non-orgasmic, non-ejaculatory, but you're still cultivating the sexual energy. You're just not dispersing it. And then the other is sort of almost just, you know, sublimating it or even turning away from it. And, and, and I'm curious as to whether, because, because in the former, that Kundalini energy or whatever you want to call it, the sexual vital life force builds and builds and builds because you're not pumping and dumping. But on the other, where you simply just kind of almost neuter yourself and decouple from those impulses, doesn't it not sort of ebb away over time it's almost like a sort of you know willfully invoked menopause or andropause like what no, was your no. experience of it over well, time well with, well with the taoist approach i experimented that in my marriage not during mm-hmm. my period of celibacy so I, with my wife but um well something amazing happened because uh, and <laughs> because after about nine months of being very strict I started to observe mindfulness of something something very odd happening that when I would see people kiss lustfully or touch each other in any way they were expressing their lust, I started to feel a, a, an organic aversion. And I went, whoa, that's very interesting. It's almost like when you stop eating meat and you go through a long period of time when you don't eat meat, you start breathing. See people digging into a beef steak and you start feeling nauseous. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was mindfully aware of this organic revulsion to lust. That was there was that seemed to be a natural result out of out of disengaging from from identification with sexual feelings, and I thought it was utterly fascinating mm-hmm. seeing how how it all worked. And and for me, this working with um, working with sexuality as a spiritual practice for me taught me more about how to how to let go of my emotions and and, and my mind more than meditation ever did. I mean, it's one of the hardest things for people to deal with, and especially for men, have a very difficult time with their own sexual feelings. I think weakened and overpowered by the power of it all. Mm-hmm. So I, I would often encourage my students to kind of work with, work with these practices to, so they wouldn't feel victimized by their own feelings. 
Okay, so you did it. You did. You worked with sexual energy via negation, right? Via via yes. Yes. mindful celibacy. What were what were your core techniques or technologies of ecstasy? How did you, when you were talking about getting into group coherence, um, was it just you in an unformatted way? opening up a hole in the universe as you described it at the center of your being and people falling in one at a time was there meditation chanting breath work scriptural contemplation what did you use as your techniques of ecstasy in your community if sexuality and substances weren't which are clearly the go-tos these days um well well what you might find interesting is that i wanted my students to be able to have access to non-duality not not being dependent on my, on my presence so i so they would be meeting together without me being there and i and that was i wanted them to find have access to the source without my physical presence without me being needed to be there and um what we found the, the the simple the simple technology has to do with coming together and coming together with other people in a state of profound trust deep trust and shared commitment to take this lead and the ego has to be transcendent. So the way the ego is transcendent in this context is that we have to practice becoming more interested in what we don't, don't already know than what we do already know. But with great sincerity, with great sincerity, in other words, to come together and be more interested in listening and expressing our opinions and sharing what we, what we think we know, what we think we realize. We have to return to zero, sit with other people in a state of awakened, inspired intention, and become more interested in listening to what we don't already know and listening to what we don't already know and listening to what we don't already know and listening, listening, listening. And if we can do this with enough intensity, some, the, what we could call the source, we begin to bubble up in one individual and we begin to speak. And so then someone will find access to the mind of enlightenment, to the mind of the Buddha, the way, that, the way realized teachers do. They'll find access to that same source of knowledge and they'll start speaking from that place. Suddenly, it's it's not it's not it's, they're speaking through the personality of the individual, but it's a kind of a much deeper something much deeper is coming through them, just like it comes through me. And then the idea then what happened was that someone else would would, would bubble up in one person, another person, they would respond. And the idea the, then the goal would be to get this 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 deeper this deeper source of wisdom in the mind of the Buddha, start having a conversation with itself through through these otherwise unenlightened individuals. That, that this this the source would begin to have a conversation with itself, and 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 of course the minute that happens, it, there's a shared state of unbelievable ecstasy and excitement because people start to feel that they're they're they're, they're being turned on in, in the most thrilling way because they feel connected to reality, the deepest dimensions of reality, and create a potential as as is bubbling through them, and they didn't even know that they could do such wondrous things. Only Andrew could, or only other other people could. It's only they find that it's, it's happening through them and this was this is the most exciting breakthrough that we ever did and this is what we continue to work on mm -hmm. and of course that i mean that feels like it lives somewhere inside the triangle of you know Werner Erhard and Est and sort of gestalt encounter sessions, right? Those would often have some emergent properties. Fritz Perls throwing that those kind of early pioneers. You've got kind of jazz bands, you know, that that famous kind of round midnight, you know, like after the first set, they come back, they probably smoke a little weed, have a few whiskeys at, at set break, come back out, the audience is loose. And around midnight, right, is where the good shit would happen. And and there would be these emergent notes and people, you know, the, the music playing the band. And then there's obviously the historic kind of Quaker, you know, society of friends, that notion of a gathered meeting, right, where spirit or like if if they played their cards right, and no one grandstanded, you know, and, and, and we and we really allowed ourselves to drop, then then there would be truth being spoken amongst us.
how, where would you locate? Like, if that's an approximate, you know, just back of the napkin map, where would you locate your guys' group emergence practice? What felt closest? Well, for us, it was, I think it's all, I think everything you mentioned all at the same time, but I think we were, we were very much focused on awakening to the evolutionary impulse. The evolutionary impulse is, is the, is the, is the state of ecstatic urgency. It's the felt state of ecstatic urgency, which is very related to the state of flow that you, that you speak about all the time. So it's a state, it's a shared state of consciousness where the omega point suddenly would become visible to everybody simultaneously. And, 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 and that omega point would be calling everybody's attention to it and, and, and calling for, calling, calling forth our, surrendered participation so that it's 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 gifts could be could could become manifest mm -hmm. so I, I don't i don't know if the quaker i don't know if the quaker process which other people have have, have spoken about saying it's very similar to what we were doing occurred in any content in an evolutionary context or not i, I think it probably didn't mm. that, that, that was the unique characteristic had to do with the fact that becoming aware of this momentum in other words what it's what uh, sri Aurobindo calls the psychic being so the psychic being is like waking up on a moving train. You realize that the train's the train is when you wake up, it's it's already moving forward. And the feeling of that momentum is a feeling of static urgency that's so pregnant with unlimited potential. And so when our limited selves awaken to this unlimited potential, it's the biggest thrill. And especially if we if we follow through on it and give and give and, and, and co-create something extraordinary as a result, then then we're really doing something important. Yeah, my sense is that it is so neat and so fun and so potent and so inspiring and so information rich that we generally just lose our tits when we get there, right? I mean, it's, it's, the, cartog it's the cartography and the protocols that we bugger up. It's not that humans haven't been doing this for ages. I mean, there's even arguments that Neanderthals did it before sapiens, right? Like that, that sense of, right, that, that sense of some form of group mind and nonverbal connectivity and potentially stable access. In fact, there's a book called The Hidden Spring, which meshes very closely with the thesis I lay out in Recapture the Rapture about the brainstem potentially being the seat of consciousness. And then, you know, if I, if I now graft some of the research at Stanford and Harvard uh, and elsewhere on, and MIT onto it is that it is the delta wave access of deeply coherent field that, that, that is providing an access to the information layer, which in your idioms would have been spirit, source, ground, non-dual being, whatever it would be. But you could just really generically, deliberately generically, so it doesn't get aggrandized, just say, hey, the information layer, right, where all is apprehensible in all directions at once. Um, that that is potentially table stakes and something that Homo sapiens with a sufficiently complex prefrontal cortex and spinal columns and erogenous zones and opposable thumbs <laughs> have particular access to. And this would be that dualistic model of Henri Bergson and everybody else of kind of, you know, rate radio receiver, you know, of signal kind of a, a, a dualistic situation versus just information. Are we just jacking into the back door of the, you know, John Wheeler's it's from bits, the information substrate of the universe in legible form? Are we just simply able to decode it? And if so, it's actually not, I mean, it's, it's profound, you know, it's amazing, but it's not miraculous. It is not, a, it, you know, it is supernatural, not supernatural. And, and, and I just wonder if, you know, with a few more laps on this, can we start 
mapping that terrain. And rather than having it being these anomalous moments that anoint gurus or geniuses, you know, or avatars who by and large have had access to this all along. They've either given it, this was the grace of God, this was the muses, this was tongues of fire, this, this was, you know, an epileptic state for Joan of Arc, whatever, whatever, our, whether they are spiritual explanations or materialistic uh, explanations, we, we've generally kept them pretty close to the vest. There's not that many people that have generated outsized create creativity on behalf of culture, civilization, arts, technology, philosophy, religion, and also just blurted out, here's how I got there. <laughs> you know, most people kind of like keep it on the keep it on the shelf, like don't tell anybody. But this is where it actually comes from. I mean, we have a buddy who uh, is a NASA PhD, who has just I think his, it was published in Smithsonian and several other magazines, but he's basically reimagined the entire origins of life based wow. not on thermal vents, but actually based on hot springs and the ebbing and flowing of hot water in the hot springs and specifically like the bathtub ring. It's literally where fission fusion would happen. It's where molecules and things would get slammed together and then animated with heat and then it would recede and then they'd kind of fall apart and found some um, geologic evidence and fossil record six months later they put it on a bulletin board six months later these other australian researchers like i think we just found what you were looking for but his wow. original thesis came on high dose mushrooms in the redwoods of santa cruz wow. and he was literally encountered an entity that was like here's physics here you push here you push there and basically engaged in him in a you know a, a sort of socratic dialogue in hyperspace wow demonstrated to him here's how this shit works now wow. go look for it and he went to his, you know, research partners who were a little bit more grounded and were like, okay, buddy, like that's whack, but possible. Let's articulate this. And next thing you know, you know, three years later, it's in a peer reviewed journal, but he's wow. not, he's not putting that in the footnotes. <laughs> so, 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 so this question is, um, is, you know, my, my hunch is, is that it's the same way that logos, right? The ability for humans to express language was bolted onto a primate chassis. Right. We still had to get glucose to the brain and we still had to avoid sharp things and, and cats with teeth. But on the other hand, we had the capacity to imagine past, present and future. We had the capacity to transfer intergenerational wisdom. We collapsed time with with culture, technology, philosophy, art, abstract symbols and, you know, and, and signs and signifiers that what is possible if and when we get to the thing that you were barking up, the tree you were barking up. Right. Which is fundamentally stabilized group coherence of the information field that is the substrate of all reality. And can mm -hmm. we do that in a way that's unremarkable, non-hierarchical, congruent with developmental impulses, you know, and yet still acknowledges the profound significance of doing it together, of doing it in community, of doing it with mutuality, support, and modeling? Well, I, I yeah, yeah, I'd love to know the answer to that question, but I think that it will always be remarkable because that because what we experience in those states is non-ordinary, extraordinary. <laughs> I mean, the transformed... It's, it's super it's, fucking fun. Let's not forget that part. Yeah, yeah, but, it, but that's when people find that's when people are, people's ambivalence about being alive just, just disappears and then because suddenly life becomes so thrilling and so inherently purposeful, not because it should be, because they see that it just is. It's, it's, so, it's so liberating, so life-affirming. So that's why, that's why it's so remarkable every time. And it's like it's ever new. It's like it's, it's the only experience we can have in which we can never already know it, even if we've known it thousands of times. It's always it's always like the first time. So I don't. So for that reason, I don't know how it can ever become ordinary. Hmm. But I've really interesting. Else 
Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I, I think that uh, good old Jerry Garcia, the founder of the Grateful Dead, and kind of you know stood up with Ken Kesey for the Merry Pranksters and those early acid tests. I think those guys were some of the most interesting pioneers and experimenters in this space because under high doses of LSD, dancing at the acid tests in San Francisco and noodling on guitars with newly electrified amps and all that kind of stuff, they found that field and they found that there was something emergent. It wasn't a musical show or a concert. It was a happening. And the happening, right, was what could we do together if we all just, no one grabs the ring, right, and we all wait to see what emerges, which requires the, the distinct possibility of falling flat on your fucking face and it's sucking, right? It will not be entertaining. It, right, right. But on those nights that it hit, it was quintessential. And, and that was something that Garcia was emphatic about. He's like, he's like, I refuse to grab the ring. If I do that, even though everybody wants me to, everybody's pumping messianic juju my way, because what comes out of my guitar in those moments is truly mystic Christic, lysergic mystic Christic, right? I refuse. And as a result, they kept that lane clear, right? And it showed up in the lyrics. It showed up in the music, right? That, that they have a tune, people joining hand in hand while the music played the band. They forgot yeah. about the time, right? So that whole notion of, of slipping into Kairos together. Um, but it seems like in the spiritual marketplace, very few, um, very few teachers are willing or able to you know, leave the throne empty for Elvis or Elijah, right? That the temptation to plunk their asses down and take that adoration um, is strong. So, my a question for you, and I know there's two more I have as we wrap, but one is in the in the rogues gallery, right? Where you've got you know most recently, and I think least interestingly, Keith Raniere and Nexium. Then you've got Trunkpa, you've got Adi Da, and you've got Osho. Where would you locate yourself and why? Both in, both in methodology, transmissions, and implosions. Wow, that's a difficult question. So it's, it's, it's Osho, Arida, Trunkpa, and the Axiom fellow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jamie. Because you, you got the hairdo of the Nexium fellow. You know, but I think, but I think you were tapping in some, some different stuff. He was basically like a hot, like a retread landmark, multi-level marketing guy. Um, so, so there was, there was, there's other stuff with the other guys. Well, I think, I, I, I think I have, I have, I have, a, I have some of the grandiosity of Adida. Some of the. You didn't write in all caps though. I think you, you, your punctuation was on point. I never wrote in all caps, and I and, and I and I never was I never I, I never became quite as absurdly narcissistic as he obviously did. But I I respect him as one of the greatest modern realizers that's ever existed. <laughs> he had some serious issues. So, but I had it. But I I did have a sense of a grandiosity. Um, I feel with Trump, there is there is a respect. And then love and appreciation for the significance of the Dharma, that to me is very much alive in my heart and still has language, which I see in the context of the evolution of, of, of tradition, even though I'm not a Buddhist. Mm. It's very much alive for me. And uh, very much like Osho, I had, I, had, I, I, mean, I still have all these feelings, but I, I wanted to create a revolution. 
and I, and I, I still have all the, I, I still feel this way. It's mm-hmm. still, the fire's still burning. Yeah, but like I was trying to create a revolution. And I was aware that I was aware of all the difficulties and the failings of all of these teachers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you, of, you offered extended critiques, right? So, so, so what, yeah. what, what, what slipped through your filters where you were both aware of them and the obvious lessons learned of like, don't go that way, don't do what they did. And yet, which, which bits did you miss in the sort of after action reviews of those feet of clay fellow teachers? Well, I think that I, I, um, there's a couple of basic things I had wrong, which was that I felt that uh, I, I believed, for, for, because of certain experiences I'd had with the students, that at some level we, we all always know what we're doing. And I and I and I, re, and I realized after this after this huge crisis that happened in my life, the crash of the community, I started to be aware of the fact that in several in several instances there were things I didn't want to see, because I didn't want to see them, I didn't see them, I was I was avoiding and denying them. But that wasn't. But it wasn't how I saw myself. But I saw myself as being fully conscious of everything that was happening within me. And even though I understood the concept of shadow and I could speak about it, I be, I, I believe that I was was aware of everything that was happening inside me. I wasn't avoiding anything. It just wasn't true. Hmm. Okay. So your blind spots had blind spots. <laughs> yes. Right. I mean, not even to be able to locate them on the map. Right. I mean, it's one thing to be like, oh, that's my shit and I'm still working on it. And that's another thing to be like, I'm, I don't, my shit don't stink. I don't have any. And, but exactly. you do. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And I, um, I never, I mean, I never believed I was infallible. I never, I never honestly believed that. And I did, because I embraced an evolutionary worldview, I always knew the world works in progress. I understood that and I believed that. But, it did, it, but everything you've said and everything I ever heard or experienced from you did seem to suggest that you posited yourself outside of that time and causation as someone absolutely. at the end of time. Absolutely. Well, well yes and no, but, but fundamentally, yes. <laughs> you were like a sort of Francis Fukuyama's guru, you know, right? You, 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 you positioned yourself at the end of history. You were the last man. I never thought of that, but it sounds reasonable. Like, at, like, like things have culminated where I stand. There is no beyond that. Oh, I'm not completely sure I, I saw things that way. I, I had a lot of confidence hmm. in, my, in myself and in my realization and in my, in my perspective. But I, don't, I, don't, I wasn't sure that I had saw myself as um, having, having gone beyond where all others had gone before. I, that's just not really true. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't necessarily phrase it that specific way of like superseding all those who've come before, but more just that sense of I am a culmination of that evolutionary impulse, right? I, I am a stake in the ground on the high ground. And oh, I, saw myself, I saw myself at the leading edge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, well. Um, I mean, there's a bunch of different things I'd love to do, but in, in the interest of time, uh, I'll, I'll ask you a couple of the most recent kind of bringing us up to speed. Uh, moment. One, one was I was thinking of like going through the culty cult checklist with you, but for sure the the and, and and it loops back to my last question, which was the mythologized origin stories of the founder, right? The specialized in group language, the um, the tight control of peak state in particular. You know these chances for you guys to get to to group um, group experience. Um, but the the one that happened a few years ago that I think you wrote about. Um, 
which was your experience coming out of the kind of dark night of your soul and having a really profound either singular or maybe series of ayahuasca experiences and and my you know the the kind of the obvious question to ask was would be oh like for an unreconstructed narcissist, of course, Mother Aya is going to tell you you are actually still super special and have world and are in fact a world teacher and need to go back to teaching. It's so not what happened. It's not what great, happened. great. So, 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 walk me through that from the inside out because that sounds like fundamentally a a different domain of inquiry than kind of the the Indian contemplative tradition. It's quite boosty and quite often has its own, um, whatever you want to call it, intelligence, information streams, et cetera. So what was it like at a time of profound, you know, self instability, questioning, not knowing to dive into that experience and what did it ultimately have, uh, what, what light did it ultimately shed on both your kind of your, your, your present moment at that time and your future? Well, I, 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 I was, I, I experimented with the ayahuasca under with guidance because I wanted to find out what I was, what I was seeing about myself. And I, and, and especially in the first, the first trip I took, I realized that there were holes in my soul that I hadn't been aware of. I just hadn't been aware of them. Holes in your soul. That's a, that's a phrase. Yeah, they were, they were, they were painful. They were painful wounds. I saw them as physical wounds. But I realized that they weren't in my body. They looked physical in that state of consciousness, but they were actually in my soul. And it was very painful. And I remember, I remember waves and waves of, gr of grief and despair and regret and shame that were literally gutting and overwhelming. Um, but the, the, the experience I had with the ayahuasca that was the most revelatory was that I, uh, I said, I wanted to know how all this happened. Well, how did all this happen? Why did all this happen? Mm -hmm. So I, I was whisked to some space, some place, and my brother was beating the shit out of me when I was a little boy, which he did quite a bit. And I saw all this at the level of vibration, which was, I just saw it all coming. And I suddenly understood that I had, that my subpersonality was, because I realized that, like, for example, like little girls who were sexually molested. Think that they must have done something to me to deserve this 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 molestation. They usually they usually feel guilty. So I realized in that moment that my subpersonality is the bad boy who deserves to be punished. Because why was why was he doing this to me? Because it, it, it quite messed me up when I was a little boy. So I realized that I had a subpersonality that was the bad boy who deserves to be punished, and my frontal personality was was the was the uh, was the perfect sacrifice. So I kind of realized in that moment. But that what I just been, what I was going through, what I'd been through, that if I couldn't be the perfect sacrifice, and I was going to be the bad boy who deserved to be punished. And I remember that when I went, "Oh my God, is that what this is all about?" Because I, I pulled, because myself, my my shadow pulled it off. Because now I was internationally famous for being the bad boy who deserves to be punished, and I realized that my shadow won in that moment. And it was yeah. I mean, I just think you could have, you could have just sorted that all out with some latex and a ball gag. I mean, son of a bitch. <laughs> But it brought but what happened in that moment was I, f I feel like I joined the human race in a way that I hadn't ever before because I, I, I saw the, 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 the drama and the, the what's the word the pathos of it all on a very human level. But it was it was it was painful, it was unbearable, it was very purifying. So that was that was number one. And then the second one was 
the, the other side of this was that I, the, the next one was I was whisked off. A, vo a voice said, you have to take responsibility for this. You have to, you have to change now. You have to do this. Now, so it was a voice of, of the teacher, whatever that means. And I was whisked off to my, and I didn't ask, I didn't think about this. So I was whisked off to the feet of my guru. And I re-experienced the Wait, wait, wait just one sec. Which is, 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 that, is that still Punjaji? Oh, there's only one, yeah. Okay. So, so even though you experience in real life, you experience separations and breaks in your yes. kind of energetic life, he yes. is, he's still the one. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So I was whisked off and I, and I was like, I experienced the moment of benediction that he put the jewel in my hands. And then, and he said, don't ever drop it again. Ooh. And then I, then I suddenly was back. I was just on my mat and I stayed there for about three, four, five, six hours, just staring at my hands and meditating on emptiness. Hmm. And, and for you, that was some on-ramp on, to, you know, back towards a role teaching? Well, cer well, it certainly was, but it, yes, it was. It certainly was, but but um, but the thing is, Jamie, I never, I never gave, I never, I never gave it up. Mm -hmm. It never occurred to me that it was something that I shouldn't be doing, and it's always been obvious to me that it's only, it's only thing I can do, only thing I need to do, only thing that I should do. And so my gift is. Hmm. Well, so so let's let's bring this let's bring this home because. Um, you know, you've recently, has, has your book come out now? Is it, is it already published? Unfortunately, it's not coming out for another year. Oh, no. What happened? It, this is uh, the catalog and the schedule. I, I, I can't remember it off of this. We okay. just got at the cover today. Okay. Um, well, you know, you, you shared with me a, a manuscript, um, probably around the time, you, you know, you reached out and made contact in the spring and I, and I read through it and, and then also just kind of hearing feedback from people in our kind of extended and overlapping communities where I think there was, you know, there was both potentially some acceptance. I'm sure you've had some uh, meaningful reconnecting conversations and some kind of, you know, truth and reconciliation kind of conversations with people. No, you're saying that hasn't happened. No, no, I, I, I spent, I spent, I spent about six months traveling around the world, reaching out to people. I went, I went to about seven, seven different countries specifically to do exactly what you're saying, but it, there's a strange standoff. I don't understand it, but there has been almost no reconciliation. Mm. There's, there's been there's this strange black and white world where I was the I was God's gift to humanity. I was the most revolutionary, extraordinary, profound evolutionary guru on the planet. To being this, to being this this, this flawed sadist, and mm. suddenly people who knew me very well because I'm I'm I'm, I'm kind of like an open book. So people who know me know me pretty well. Seemingly, so but I suddenly. The way I was being seen was different, and and there's a lot of a lot of there's a lot of healing that has not that I feel at that originally needs to happen for a couple of hundred people, mm. and we're at, a, we're, at a, we're at a very big standoff. And a lot of my former students who are now teachers in their own right, uh, who spent 20, 25 years as my students, which is not a small amount of time, mm. uh, disavow that dis disavow. That I was the source of so much of what they did. So it's, it's pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, was, is not dissimilar to Adi Da, right? I mean, there was a very clear 
lineage transmission that happened to many oh, of yeah, us. Oh, yeah, and then and then he was just sort of stricken from resumes. <laughs> Left and right, right. And in fact, uh, our, our dear friend Terry Patton, who just recently died, um, was probably one of the few not to recant, you know, to be like, he was crazy. He threw me in a fucking fire. It was whacked and invaluable. And even Pema Chodron, you know, at least, I don't know if she's most recently done any rec recanting on Trungpa, but, you know, in her, I think it was Tricycle or Shambhala did an interview, you know, 10, 20 years ago where a woman journalist was explicitly trying to get her to kind of me to Trungpa and she refused. She's like, he was dangerous. We knew he was dangerous. That's what made his teachings so invaluable. Um, but, you know, it, it also, I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I wish for everyone involved um, a deeper reconciliation, but in reading your manuscript, I'm not surprised because I literally had kind of a face palm moment going into the beginnings of it where you, began with the same mythologized origin stories. You know, you, you, you recounted a story that I think you've told, you know, many times in your, in your career of your upbringing, even with, even the story as you contextualize it with your brother, which was, I was smarter, better looking and, 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 and you know, and more eloquent than he was. Then Punjaji recognized you that. And I, and I was just like, Oh, Andrew, those are the wrong notes to hit out of the gates. And in your passing of the community and, and what happened there and the damage you inflicted, I think for sure you, you acknowledge the chaos, the confusion, your blind spots, but then you also kind of go to the almost professorial high ground and you sort of spiral dynamics them. And you're like, oh, well, they were postmodern and here's the reason why they couldn't get it. And this is why it all happened, which even reading it sympathetically, like wanting you to get it right. I'm like, fuck, dude, this is not going to play well in the bleacher seats. You're going to get killed on this. And that's actually why I emailed you back. Like, are you, are you close to done on the manuscript? Like, is there a chance to shuffle some things around? Because, because that sequencing to, to anybody, particularly in our hypersensitive uh, world these days, right? Where everything from social justice to gender politics and things have become both Let's think. Let's just, right, right. Well, well, fraught and hyper reactive, and also almost Maoist scripted. You know, like you, you, if you're if you're on the receiving end of a struggle session, there is a script you follow, and if you do not follow it, you just are subject to further beatings. And and I didn't get the sense that the manuscript, at least in the form as I read it, was going to get you out of the dog box. So my curiosity there is, you know, what was your sense on structuring it well, that the way? Book, the book wasn't written as an apology. Particularly. I was trying to tell him, I was trying to tell a big story and set a big context for it. And so many people who had thrown the baby out with the bathwater that I thought I needed to stand up for the truth of the baby that we all co-created and we all shared and that still has value and relevance. So I feel that if I, if I took it as far as you're suggesting that I, that I, that I should have, but I, I don't know how I could honor the truth, goodness, and beauty that we all created together. Yeah, and that is that is the trick, right? Um, because the bathwater yeah. is really muddy these days. No, because I wrote a I wrote a very passionate apology letter, but at the beginning I was trying to remind everybody what role we're doing, what the context was. And because I just didn't say I'm sorry, but I I spoke about the context people became curious. I'm aware of that. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then you look, I mean, America's got a well-established tradition 
and even aesthetic of the repentant sinner, right? <laughs> From the Scarlet Letter to the Crucible to Bill Clinton, you know, like, like we love a good pedestal to the pit, to the rehabilitation, but it does follow a script. And if you deviate from the script, you risk a stoning, right? And instead of a clean guillotine and, you know, and, and, and so it's just, in, you know, the fact that you, uh, at least at those times, you know, those moments, those moments of choice that you had, you were unwilling to set aside the aspirational and simply meet people at the level of the emotional but I did. No, but I, 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 I spent many months traveling and meeting people one-on-one and doing that. Oh, yeah. No, no. I, again, I'm just being super pragmatic. This, is, this, isn't me. Oh. this isn't me sort of judging you. It just didn't fucking work by your own description. No, not, not at all. Zero. Right. Yeah, so something, something right, was missing but the, there. But the, thing, but the thing is, Jamie, I would have had to apologize for, for my radical spirit. That's why I called, we called the book Radicals. I would have had to apologize for that, and then I'd be a liar. That's what they wanted. They wanted me to apologize for the whole thing. They wanted me to apologize for the very thing that attracted them to me in the first place. And I couldn't go that far because that would have been just completely dishonest. But a lot of people wanted, wanted me to say it was all wrong in the very, very beginning. The teaching was all wrong. I was all wrong. And then they said, no, now he really gets it. That now I really feel he's gotten the message that I could never go that far. And I have to be true to myself and true to the realities I understand. It. That's the conundrum. Hmm. Because everybody knew that I was a bad boy and everybody knew I was making it up as I went along and I thought that was so heroic and so outrageous. And when I got it right, I really got it right. And people saw me improvising and seeing when the arrow hit the center of the, uh, the, the target. They said, this is amazing. And so it was, there, I wasn't hiding. It was no secret how, how out there I was as a teacher and how audacious. And so everybody said yes. And so I, I don't excuse myself for my own mistakes because they, they were mine and, they, and I created a lot of karma. And, I, and I, I do feel I have a tongue for that. But I can't apologize for the radical spirit that's still alive in me. And I, everybody was deeply attracted to it. I thought it was the coolest, hippest, most outrageous thing that I've ever seen. Well, I mean, it, it strikes me that the radical spirit you're talking about is profoundly transpersonal. And if, the collect, and if the collective presencing and, and recognition of that is the actual juice, that's the, that's the new ground, that you, as someone for whom that beacon was alive and alert, um, being a totally fallible human, is fundamentally decoupled from that source consciousness, whether it just abides in the timeless void or whether it comes alive when three or more are gathered. Um, to me, that feels like a, a fair, fairly easy delineation. This wasn't me. This was coming through me. It was also coming through us. It, 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 it's like the dude. It just abides. Yes. And, you know, and versus I still had some exceptionality in my commitment or dedication to it because ultimately it doesn't give a fuck, you know, and we're all just, <laughs> we're all just blips in the time stream. For sure. So is, is that, Possible. I mean, you know, at my senses, you, you probably already, you know, you, the cement is already has already set on whatever this next chapter of your life is going to look like. You, you probably had moments no, of deep fluidity. No, 
No, no, no. Because I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to do this in a, in a completely different way. And I think about nothing else. It's the cement is definitely not dry. I have more questions about how to move this forward than I've ever had in my life. Hmm. Neat. Well, I'm, then I'm, I'm, I'm supremely unsure about it. And I'm very open and curious in it and in a state of constant inquiry about it. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I appreciate you having taken a big swing uh, for what you thought to be true. I was on a podcast with um, Matthew Remsky, I think is his name, and Derek Beres. They, they run a conspirituality podcast. And weirdly, Matthew got totally hijacked. I think he's got, he's got some cultic background himself and has written some books about it, but he got completely hijacked by the section where I said, hey, it's actually you know, like all the post-cult folks tut tut, you know, and, and, and kind of pluck at their apron strings and say, see, they were just gurus with feet of clay. They were just in it for money, sexual power. And I was like, for some total shysters, shysters, that's true. But for the true transmitters, for the Dawes and the Oshos, right? For, for folks that absolutely positively lit people up and put people into repeat powerful states, it's more complicated than that. Right. And he absolutely went off the rails that I was an apologist for cult leaders and that I was somehow justifying their abuses and all this kind of stuff, which clearly I wasn't. I wouldn't have written a book about ethical cults and did culty cult checklists if that had been the case, but full hijack from the, for the dude. But um, he advanced a case, and this is one that I'm curious about. Is it better or worse for humanity or the cosmos that Adi Da, Osho, and you? ever lived <laughs> you think i can you think i can give you an objective answer to that question no just just a heartfelt spontaneous one is is it better to have swung for those fences and blown yes, the whole I, thing I, sideways I, I, absolutely yes no without a doubt and why because ex because radical experiments like this uh generate enor enormous energy and human potential really. I mean, the, I mean, Adi does had a, has had an extraordinary influence on hundreds of thousands of people. Joe Trump has had an enormous influence on hundreds of thousands of people, and I believe that my work has influenced a lot of people also. And I think that I think a radical spirit, these radical spirits um, who are so flawed, push the envelope for all of us. I mean, I mean, I was never, I was never particularly fascinated by Osho as a teacher for, for for many reasons, but if you can imagine. You, you imagine what he, if he was preaching look free sexuality in India in the early sixties, he was out, he was out, he was an outrageous character who was challenging all these, this, the, the Indian uptight status quo, like nobody's business. And of course, teaching, preaching free sex to the Western hippies is no big accomplishment, but where, but where he was, if you, if you pay attention to where he was coming from in the early sixties, he was completely outrageous. Mm -hmm. And Trump, of course, we know in terms of his, and his teaching was similarly, but in a very different way, completely outrageous. And so outrageous characters make, a, make it possible for us to question the way we interpret reality in ways that more, people that are more careful would probably would never be able to do. So I think the answer is unequivocally yes. And, we, and, and the Dharma needs a lot of work, and people like me have a lot of work to do to clean up our acts so we can present the Dharma in a way that is equally potent but less dangerous. Mm. Well, there we get the diamond. needs a lot of work. That's hilarious. Um, so yeah, well, so the, way, the, way, the way it's taught. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. one, because one of the things you said in your book about this, the significance of traditions was, well, you know, if you take these teachers outside traditions, you know, they they anoint themselves, and the traditions keep people safe, and it's a context they have to they have to be true, be true to and be guided by. That there's been as much co co corruption and confusion and, and oh, yeah. destruction in the Catholic Church and in Buddhist monasteries as it has been outside it. 
So tradition doesn't 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 save us in any way, shape, or form. No, but, no, 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 just religiosity or or atheism, right? I mean, Stalinism and Maoism had no gods and did all sorts of murderous things, much, right? Like much, much worse, much worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but I know I know we got to go. But just my just to finish this this that that I feel I feel that radi- radical awakening is inherently countercultural, and I think we, we realize that. So how, how we how I think that's the truth we have in this country. It's going to shake up our world. And I remember Terry when I, when I was hanging out with Terry during the fall of the community. He said, "You know, he said Andrew, if you look at communities where nobody's ego, nobody's ego's got singed at all, nobody ever changes." All so right. It's complicated. So it's complicated. So it's it's Schumpeter's creative destruction in in the realm of the psycho spiritual. It's even our. NASA buddies, um, fission fusion on the bathtub ring of life that, that we, need to bring. <laughs> we need to bring some heat and we sometimes need to let things cool and consolidate. And from the, the yeah. propagation of novelty and, and, and what is an emergent life and awareness comes. So Andrew. And, uh, and one last thing, I never, and I never think we've arrived and always keep learning. Yeah. Something like that. The good old fashioned horizon line. We always sail towards and never reach. So thank, uh, thank you, Jamie. You're, you're a delight. Thank you yeah, very man. much. Uh, appreciate the riff and uh, and wish you well on your deliberate and intentional return to public life. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.